So thank you very much, uh, Sachin Muni. Thank you for a very warm introduction and welcome. And I wanted also to say thank you for um, inviting me to here to the Manchester Buddhist Centre. Um, I actually have strong connections with Manchester. Uh, I was brought up in Cheadle, which many of you will know is not that far away, south in Cheshire, just south of Manchester. And I spent uh, a lot of my teenage years in the city here. So, yes, and uh, it's uh, quite a long time since I've been at the Buddhist Centre, so very, very good to be here with you all. So, yes, the title of my talk is um, Sangakaya and the Heart's Release. And I'm going to start by talking about Anatta Pindika, who appears in a sutta in the Pali Canon. It's three years after the Buddha's enlightenment at the time of the rainy season in Rajagaha in a bamboo grove. It's a period in the year, as we know, when the Buddha and his followers, the bhikshus, the the monks, there were no nuns as yet at this point, I don't think, would gather and pass the weeks meditating and talking Dharma. They had no official dwelling places It said they were living here and there in the woods, at the root of trees, under overhanging rocks, in ravines, hillside caves, charnel grounds, jungle thickets, on heaps of straw. So quite something to be living in the open like this in the rainy season, living rough, you might say. At the same time, we're told that they inspired confidence amongst those who saw them when they walked from these places in the early morning to gather together. Their eyes were downcast and they moved with grace. And a rich merchant of Rajgaha visited the grove and seeing the bhikshus felt trust in them. He offered to build them dwelling places and the Buddha accepted his gift. Apparently, 60 dwellings were built in a day. <laughs> after which he invited, after the building of which he invited the Buddha and community to eat with him the following day, when he would then present the dwellings to them. And the merchant's brother-in-law, Anatta Pindika, happened to visit at this time when preparations for the meal were going on and was surprised that the merchant was so taken up with the arrangements that he did not immediately greet and welcome him. And thinking there must be a marriage about to happen, or a great sacrifice, or even that King Bimbisara was due to visit, he asked what was going on. The merchant replied, No, no, no marriage, no royal visit. But there was an invitation for the following day to the community of bhikkhus, led by the Buddha, the Enlightened One. And I'm sure you know Anattapindika's response. Do you say the Buddha? I say the Buddha. Do you say the Buddha? I say the Buddha. Do you say the Buddha? I say the Buddha. So he was knocked out, bowled over, astonished. So it's hard for us to quite comprehend the effect, the force of that single word. 
And I find it easier to imagine that effect if I think of the term, the word translated, the Buddha, the awakened one. An art appendica is being told that there is in this world one who is awakened, one who has woken up from the sleep of unconsciousness, and he is completely galvanized by this. This news, the Buddha, the Buddha is hard to come by in the world. Is it possible to go and see this blessed one, accomplished and fully enlightened, now? He can't even wait until the Buddha appears for the meal the following day, but the merchant tells him he can go and see the Buddha in the morning. So an Pindika lies down to sleep, his thoughts full of going to see the Buddha. Three times he got up thinking it was dawn. Then he couldn't wait for the light. He sets off in the darkness, but once out of the city, he's overcome by fear and wants to turn back but an inner voice urges him on. And when he arrives at the bamboo grove still before dawn, the Buddha has already risen and is walking up and down. He calls an Artapindika over by his name, Sudatta, and begins to teach him the Dharma. So this story came to my mind, partly because I have always been affected by it on its own level, but also because of the power that a word or a term can have. By naming something, we distinguish it. We come into relationship with it. And sometimes that has the effect of reducing what we experience. We can say we're looking at a sunset and fail to be open to its particular beauty and glory or subtlety because we have brought to it what we already think of as being sunset. So we're seeing it through the eyes of familiarity. But sometimes naming something brings it into experience in a wholly resonant way. So our whole being vibrates with the word. Such was an Artapindika's experience. Not only did the name Buddha carry the profound meaning of one who has awoken from the sleep of unconsciousness, but it brought into being a whole world perfumed by the existence of that awakened one. The Sutta describes how he was so galvanized by the existence of a Buddha and a world in which a Buddha existed that he had to meet with him at the earliest possible opportunity and the inspiration overcame all fear. So this is by way of a long introduction (laughs) to my own experience of hearing the word Sangakaya. It was an epiphany, uh, a moment of sudden revelation or insight, which reverberated in my mind. Like an artapindika, I kept repeating the word, Sangakaya, Sangakaya, inwardly in my case, as if I was saying, that's it, that's what it's all about. That's my spiritual life, or simply, that's my life. It seemed to give both form and meaning to a whole current of my life, both before and after meeting the Dharma. And more than that, it gave form and meaning while losing none of the mystery of what I aspired to. So being both path and goal. 
So I'm going to tell you a little bit about me. So, as I said, I was brought up uh, south of Manchester in a place called Cheadle in Cheshire. And I was born in 1948, soon after the end of the Second World War. And I grew up very conscious of the shadow of that war, as well as the hope of a new and different world that followed it. I was a a young teenager during the Cuba crisis, and I was reminded of that very recently, seeing a film called Bridge of Spies, which some of you might have gone to. It's it's in every cinema, (laughs) just about at the moment. So you remember the young boy in America being given advice by his school teachers of what to do in the case of nuclear war and filling up the bath in his family home as he knew there would be a shortage of water. And I was reminded very strongly by his anxiety and effort to do the right thing of uh, sirens being tested when I was at school and our teacher telling us in the event of an attack we should get under our desks. I'm not sure what they thought that would do in the face of a nuclear attack, but that was the instructions. And not wanting to go to school because I didn't want to be separated from my mother when the bomb dropped. (coughs) And me and my friends of that generation thinking that we wouldn't necessarily live to be adult. The campaign for nuclear disarmament was very active marches through the length of Britain, which more and more people joined until there were huge demonstrations in London. So that this was a significant part of the context of my teenage years. So it wasn't surprising that two of my main preoccupations uh, at this time in later teenage years, uh, I was going to say, apart from the Beatles, who I saw live in Manchester, no less... <laughs> and uh, preoccupations with other boys were, (laughs) first question, what is the meaning of life? That's my major preoccupation. And the second uh, preoccupation or question, how can we put an end to war? And the second question had a kind of caveat. How can we put an end to war if we can't even live under the same roof as other people? And in one way or another, you could say that the rest of my life has been directed by those two questions or preoccupations. The question about the meaning of life took me into studying philosophy at university, finding that wanting and going to live on a hippie commune in the southwest of Ireland as an alternative, going back to the earth. Uh, then, when that blew apart through conflicts and jealousies, uh, travelling overland to India and staying there for a year without really knowing <coughs> what I was there for, coming back to the UK to discover the emergence of the women's movement in London, and through those connections, meeting the Dharma in Bethnal Green shortly before the London Buddhist Centre opened. So when I say I met the Dharma, what I actually met at that first meditation class was a person, a woman. At the interval in the class, a woman came up to me and my friend 
wearing one of these and introduced herself. She looked straight at me, which was rather unnerving at the time, and asked me about myself and asked how I'd found the meditation. When she discovered I couldn't come to the class the following week, um, at the time uh, they were teaching only the first two stages of the mindfulness of breathing, so you had to go back the next week to get stage three and four. Um, and that I was actually living in the north of England at the time. So I was working in a women's rage refuge. So I was living in Leeds, but I'd been visiting London. Um, So she offered to write to me and tell me about the rest of the meditation practice we had been doing. I gave her my address, but didn't think much more about it, until a week or so later, back in Leeds... I received a letter wishing me well with the meditations and a full description a full description of the mindfulness of breathing and the metabhavna all handwritten <laughs> as things were at the time. My correspondent was a very young Sangadevi who became a founder member of Taraloka and is now a public preceptor. Her name, Sangadevi, means a goddess of the Sangha. So I didn't manage to do the meditations in Leeds, despite my very full <laughs> uh, handwritten descriptions. But I was very affected by the care of this woman who I'd never met before, keeping her word and taking the time and the trouble to write out the practices for me. A year or so later, I was back in East London. The London Buddhist Centre had opened, and like many others, I felt I had really come home. What drew me was that gesture of friendliness and care, the Dharma teachings which seemed to point to the meaning of life, and an optional lifestyle of women's communities and team-based businesses, where people seemed to be at least having a go at uh, living in harmony together under the same roof. Of course, I didn't know the half of it at the time (laughs) as to what went on. And beginning to realize that that in itself was Dharma practice. I also dimly began to understand and to experience that the Dharma which pointed to the meaning of life and the effort to live together harmoniously under the same roof were not separate, even could be mysteriously one and the same. And there was also a story that I had heard early on in my involvement which stayed with me. It was of a communication between Bante and a woman from the Croydon Centre who was considering whether or not to become a Mitra. I call it a story because I can't uh, vouch for it definitively being the actual words of the communication. But thus have I heard. In order to help her make this decision, the woman asked Bante whether there were any stream entrants in the order. In her own mind, presumably, this would be some kind of proof as to whether this movement 
was the one to really help her develop spiritually and so to make a commitment to. Bhante's response was to say that in asking the question in that way, she was putting the cart before the horse. It was rather that in asking to become a Mitra, should she wish to do that, making that commitment to the order and the movement, she was helping to create the conditions out of which stream entrance could arise. And this response of Bante's resonated with me strongly. It communicated that the arising of insight, of enlightenment, was not a private or personal affair, but a collective endeavor. And this was further emphasized by one of Sangharachita's teachings that I responded to early on as part of the Mitra study course. It comes from a seminar on mind in Buddhist psychology, a text by a Tibetan teacher called Yeshe Gyaltsen. And the extract which Bhante is commenting on has a somewhat daunting title of The Bi-Tendential Value of Being, Being with a capital B. He is explaining how being, with a capital B, which is a synonym for reality with a capital R, (laughs) is in our experience split into two parts or aspects or directions. So it's bi-tendential or going two ways, which gives rise to the experience of self and other subject and object. So he says... It's as though on the level of ordinary experience you need a double approach. Reality has has bifurcated into subject and object. So you are to approach reality not only via the subject but also via the object. In fact, the best way to approach reality is via the object rather than via the subject because to do things via the subject is your natural one-sided tendency. So therefore, the altruistic approach, alter simply meaning other, is as necessary as the self-regarding approach. And then he says, and I'm going to transpose uh, being for reality. Sorry, I'm going to transpose reality for being, because I think it's more helpful read that way. You have to gain reality not only for yourself but for others. Otherwise, you do not gain reality at all because you cannot. It is only you plus others who can. To put it very simply and practically, it is not enough to just sit there in your meditation feeling all nice and unselfish. You've actually got to go out and act unselfishly which brings in the ethical, the other-orientated dimension. It's that only which will break down the barrier between subject and object. This is why Shantideva speaks in terms of the exchange between self and other. You have to treat the other as the self, because what is the difference between them? You quite literally cannot realize reality by yourself. That isn't even a possibility. (laughs) So, very strong, unequivocal words from Bante 
which I, again, responded to uh, strongly. So at the same time as I was beginning to explore the Dharma, I was also becoming aware of the unique emphasis that Sangharachita places on friendship as a spiritual practice, even as a path. I think on the one hand we can take it for granted that the tree Ratna order and community has a particular emphasis on the importance of friendship or Sangha without realizing how truly radical that is. So just to quote uh, from a, a, a passage that I'm sure you know and have heard many times. This is Bhante speaking uh, a long time ago in India. I believe that humanity is basically one. I believe that it is possible for any human being <coughs> to be friends with any other human being. This is what I truly and deeply believe. I cannot live without this belief, and I would rather die than give it up. And also that we have not yet really seen how far the practice of friendship can take us, both individually and collectively, both how crucial it is to our spiritual growth, that it is an insight practice, and an aspect of the enlightened mind or consciousness, and how practiced collectively it can give rise to Sangakaya, the transcendental body of the Sangha. So I'm going to um, introduce another sutta now. I, again, one that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. The Magiya Sutta. So the young monk, Magiya, is the Buddha's attendant for a period of time. He is returning from his arms round <clears throat> when he passes a delightful mango grove. And immediately he is thinking what a good place it would be to meditate for a day, shaded and pleasant no doubt also thinking how much progress he will make in meditation in such a suitable place, maybe even breaking through to stream entry. Arriving back, he requests permission from the Buddha to leave and to strive in meditation in the mango grove, to which the Buddha simply says, as long as I am alone, stay here till another monk comes. But Magia can't wait. His desire is more important and he asks again, this time pointing out to Shakyamuni that he, Shakyamuni, has no further need to strive while Magia himself has more need to practice. Uh, I'm just for thinking, just try and imagine the situation. There you are with the Buddha <laughs> and you say to him, well, it's all right for you. <laughs> You're enlightened. I've still got work to do. And the Buddha replies in exactly the same way. As long as I am alone, stay here till another monk comes. So Magia asks a third time, again making the comparison. And this time the Buddha says, As you talk about striving, Magia, what can I say? Do what you think it is time to do. So maybe the first teaching here is beware of asking the Buddha three times. <laughs> 
So Megia goes to the mango grove, full of his longing for deepening his practice and no doubt for attainment. In one translation, he speaks of his need to be confirmed in his own development. And so he leaves the Buddha. And seated in meditation, before long, we are told, he is assailed by evil and unprofitable thoughts. Desire for sense experience, thoughts of ill will and thoughts of cruelty. And at the end of the day, somewhat chastened, he reports this back to the Buddha, who responds, Megia, when the heart's release is immature, five things conduce to its maturity. Here in monk, a monk has a lovely intimacy, a lovely friendship, a lovely comradeship. When the heart's release is immature, this is the first thing that conduces to its maturity. The Buddha then describes the other four things which lead to the maturity of the heart's release. The practice of ethics, engaging in discussion and reflection on the Dharma, virya, energy in pursuit of the good, and the development of wisdom, presenting Magia with a whole path of practice. But it's clear from the Sutta as it continues that spiritual friendship, Kalyanamitrata, is not simply one of the, just one of the five things, but the primary thing and the major condition for the other four. So I'm using a different translation here. Megia, when a monk has admirable people as friends, companions and colleagues, it is, it is to be expected that he will be virtuous. It is to be expected that he will be able to hear without difficulty talk on the Dharma that is conducive to the opening of awareness. It is to be expected that he will keep his persistence aroused for abandoning unskillful qualities and developing skillful qualities. It is to be expected that he will be able to discern uh, arising and passing away, or conditionality, as we might say. So I think this sutta is such a helpful reminder to us of our tendency to chase after attainments and think that we can go it alone. Of course, we will all be like Megia sometimes. We'll be fired up by a particular idea of ourselves or by our competitive natures or by the idea that a certain practice is what will do it for us. But so long as we have good friends who can reflect us back, all that need not be to our detriment. Our good friends may refrain from saying, I told you so, and listen kindly and challenge us when appropriate. And it's not just the Kalyanamitrata of the Buddha which Magia needs first and foremost, though clearly he really did not see what riches were immediately in front of him a blindness of immaturity we can perhaps all relate to. Apparently in three out of the five translations of this sutta available, the term translated as a lovely friendship is in the plural. So it is our lovely friendships which are the primary condition for our spiritual growth. 
And primary here does not just mean initial condition. The practice of friendship can take us to insight and beyond. The heart's release is the liberation of chitta, the heart-mind. It is the expansion of consciousness beyond ego clinging. In its maturity, the heart's release is a spontaneous, compassionate activity of the bodhisattva. And there's a description of this process of moving from the unenlightened to the enlightened state in terms of relationship of self and other, which I've always found really helpful. It's uh, in Know Your Mind, page 52 and 53, if you're interested. <laughs> so Sangharachita describes, Sangharachita describes, rather that rather than being able to make a sharp distinction between self and other, subject and object. He says there is a perceptual situation comprising two opposite poles. At one pole is the experience of what I call myself, together with everything I have under my immediate control. This, he says, is the subjective content of the perceptual situation. At the opposite pole is everything and everyone that is independent of my direct control. This is the objective content of that same perceptual situation. So it's just talking about experience, moment-to-moment experience. So it makes a difference, uh, I think, to me to look uh, in looking at self, not just in terms of who or what I think I am, but also in terms of what I think I have control or ownership over. My possessions, my feelings, my views, a whole mass of things. And he goes on to say, when one becomes enlightened, that perceptual situation still occurs, but one no longer identifies oneself with its subjective content which means that the whole perceptual situation is expanded, clarified, illuminated, enlightened. So the issue is not simply that there is inevitably a self-other divide, that reality as we experience it is bi-tendential. The issue is that we identify with the subjective pole, that we identify with ourself, with what we own and what we think we have control over. So the task is to identify as much or more with the objective pole, with the other, as with ourselves. It is this which transforms our experience of self and world. And the passage in Know Your Mind expands on this. When you attain enlightenment, you no longer have a will that is separate from that of others. It's as though you utterly identify with others. You no longer want one thing while they want another, or want something from them that they are unwilling to give. You experience others in a completely different way, because your will is not coming into collision with theirs. This completely different, more relaxed, lighter and freer attitude taken to the nth degree 
is something of the nature of enlightenment. The world is the same, but you see it differently. Perhaps one could say that it's like what happens when you fall in love, only much more so. So, I've just finished um, a community week at Tiratanaloka. We have these three times a year. They're a combination of a personal reporting in, um, meetings about different issues to do with our work, training women for ordination, uh, watching movies together. Uh, that was where we saw Bridge of Spies. <laughs> uh, meeting one-to-one. Um, uh, there was a first for me in that we even had a murder mystery game over a three-course dinner on this occasion. <laughs> Um, and this time we had a day of sessions with Amala Vajra, uh, a fundraiser for our fundraiser for the order and movement. So we had a day looking at money, uh, looking at our money, personal money. <laughs> it started with us each assessing um, all and any income and any assets and our outgoings. So we all have, uh, you know, more or less the same support package, as, it, as we call it, um, as many places do in Tri Ratna. Um, but obviously, we're all in different situations. Some people have worked um, for many years um, in professional jobs, and they have savings. Some people have inherited money from uh, family. Some people just have what they receive, more or less, uh, uh, month by month. So we're all in different situations. So yes, we each assessed uh, all and any income, any assets. It had to include any um, antiques, (laughs) famous paintings we might possess, you know, these sort of things, jewellery. Then we went round saying one by one uh, what we were all worth. Surprisingly, um, as a community, we've never done that before, despite some of us having lived together for over 10 years. We had some sense of each other's financial situations, but it was only superficial. It's said, isn't it, that money is the last taboo. People are more willing to talk about their sex lives than about their money. So, at the end of that round, going round, we all felt considerably more transparent. It was surprising to us all um, that while most of us had felt some resistance, which wasn't surprising, uh, we all felt a sense of relief and a closer connection having done so. And the following day, on the basis of this exercise, or these exercises, we looked at different financial needs that people had and how we could best respond to that collectively. So it gave us a very good basis for that discussion. So I've lived in women's communities in Tri Ratna for about 35 years now, mostly in conjunction with a team-based business. Initially, this was BodyWise in London, the original BodyWise, I'd like to say. <laughs> um, and now at Tiratanaloka. 
Uh, it's a situation of both intensity and friendship where I experience regularly my will coming up <laughs> against other people's will, sometimes into collision with the will of others, wanting something different than another person wants, and also experiencing the relaxation of that not happening, um, of no longer identifying so strongly with my end of uh, the perceptual situation and what I think I need, need control over and uh, experiencing that lighter and freer state of being when I can identify with my fellow community members as much or more than with myself. And both aspects of this are highlighted vividly because of the intensity of the situation. We need to cooperate in many ways to run our retreats and to do all the background work of the retreat center. And whatever happens between us, for good or ill, we will be together again that evening or the next morning. Um, any conflict or tension is painful and it feels important to check out the communication as soon as possible. So all of that, of course, goes up and down, but within those waves, there is a definite momentum as we work with ourselves and each other and play together. Individually, we grow and change, but there is also something collective which happens, which is hard to articulate and somewhat mysterious, but which I think the women who come on our retreats pick up on. The content of our retreats is excellent. I have no difficulty in saying that. <laughs> uh, we're a team of hard-working, intelligent, committed practitioners who love study of the Dharma, who love studying and practicing the Dharma. Uh, but uh, retreatants often say they have been as much affected by our relationships with each other, the way that we work together and live together, as they are by the content of the retreats. It's a spirit that is caught and not taught. And what is beautiful about that spirit comes back to the story I told about the woman from Croydon. <laughs> it was in my mind uh, writing this again about the man from Porlock. <laughs> um, anyway, I'll leave that on one side. Anyway, the woman from Croydon. Um, I never knew who she was. She's probably a dharmacharini by now. It really feels that we experience ourselves as contributing to the conditions from which spiritual growth arises, whether that be uh, within the team or amongst the retreatants. We all share in the delight of whatever is transformational for each other. So, important to say here, I'm not suggesting that this doesn't happen throughout the Sangha. Of course it does. But it is intensified and highlighted day to day in this context uh, in which I live and work. Okay, so how does this relate to Sangha The term appeared in Sabuti's talk, uh, a talk he gave in India on the convention. Uh, in relation to the Garava Sutta. This Sutta relates how the Buddha, in the period after his enlightenment, 
while still absorbing that experience, wondered who or what he could revere. That while he realized there was no one else who had attained what he had attained, he also realized that it would be painful for him not to be feeling and expressing reverence for someone or something. And Bhante comments that this is is an astonishing passage in the Sutta, which shows that reverence is an aspect of the enlightened consciousness. Then it becomes clear to the Buddha that he can reverence the Dharma, not the Dharma as taught by him, of course he's not yet even started teaching the Dharma, but not the Dharma as taught by him, but the Dharma as truth, as reality, the Dharmakaya. And there is apparently another version of the Sutta in which the Buddha also says that when the Sangha has attained to greatness, he can then revere the Sangha. So what does it mean for the Sangha to to attain to greatness and for the Buddha to revere the Sangha? This is Sangha-kaya, the transcendental aspect of Sangha the Sangha which is in accord with reality, where there is no polarization of self and other. And I infer from that, and I want to make it clear that this is my own inference, that it is something about the collective nature of that mystery of Sangha that even a Buddha reveres. That body of the Sangha, Kaya means body, is transformed into a transcendental unity. So Bhante has said a number of times in different ways uh, about conditions for the arising of the bodhicitta. He says, when you get a number of spiritually committed individuals and when the, the spiritual communication between them reaches a certain pitch of intensity, there is the bodhicitta in the midst of them. It isn't anybody's individual possession, but it creates a higher kind of unity, which is even greater than the unity of the spiritual community. The spiritual community becomes a sort of spiritual body, you could say. So this was as far as I got on the train to Manchester. (laughs) I was hoping to finish with a flourish. But uh, I haven't got there yet. I haven't got to what I really want to say to you. I've said quite a lot, and I'm sure it's been worth saying, but I still haven't got to what I really want to say or what I really want to understand for myself. So I'm just going to finish by saying... um, It's my experience that uh, the visits that I make, the the different uh, places in Tri Ratna, the different centres, the different uh, retreat centres, the order weekends, um, all the different uh, gatherings um, that I visit or take part in in Tri Ratna. So Adhisthana, Akashavana, um, the order weekends, retreats, Um, I experience a palpable sense of something happening amongst us 
which is greater than the sum of all of us as individuals. I'm experiencing that (laughs) here, talking to you now. Um, And I do think that Sangharachita's teaching on Sangha and spiritual friendship has taken root amongst us and is blossoming in myriad ways. And that there is so much more that can emerge as we go deeper and reach out to more and more people uh, in this precious gift of our teacher, this practice and path of friendship. Thank you.